Good morning, good morning. I need to tell you guys something about me. You uh, likely don't know it, and I figured we've been spending enough time together recently that I should just let you know. The movie Crazy Rich Asians is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I feel the need to tell you because I'm not sure that there are a laundry list of people who would say that that movie is in their top five movies of all time, but it's in mine. <laughs> it's in mine. So that can tell you whatever you need to know or wish you didn't know about me, but it's definitely one of my top favorite movies. And, and it, it's a movie that was uh, released back in 2018, and it, it was uh, ba- you know, back when we used to go to the movie theater to watch movies. And um, it's written uh, by, it's, it's based on the best-selling novel that's written by Kevin Kwan by the same title. And in the movie itself, it chronicles the story of this woman named Rachel Chu. And Rachel's an econ professor who lives in New York, and, and she was raised by a single mother. She comes from modest means. And Rachel ends up meeting and dating and falling in love with this guy named Nick Young. And Nick, in the movie, he just happens to be the son of one of the wealthiest families in all of Singapore and the eventual heir to that family business. But here's the, here's the kicker of the movie. Rachel has no idea who he is. No clue that that's who he is. And it isn't until they take a family trip to Singapore for, a, for one of his cousin's weddings that she starts to figure out who this Nick guy and who his family actually is. And like any good romantic comedy, there's immediately this just incredible tension between the mom and the girlfriend. And so Rachel is on her way to Singapore with Nick, and she meets Nick's mom, Eleanor, and, and the, the relationship gets off to a, what I would call more than a rocky start. And, and the, the rocky start is largely to this huge difference and discrepancy in, in the social and economic status of the two families. You know, Eleanor's status, family status is way up here, and the family that Rachel comes from is down here, and so that leads to a ton of tension and a rocky start, and Rachel starts to recognize it immediately. She starts to recognize this idea that she doesn't necessarily seem to fit here. She starts to observe about herself that she might just never be enough to be part of this family. Well, about halfway through the film, there's, there's this specific scene that I want to draw you into, and it's a scene where Eleanor and Rachel, in this sort of climactic moment, they meet at the top of this staircase, and it's just the two of them standing there. And in this moment, Eleanor begins to actually share with Rachel that she, too, didn't feel like she was enough when she was first entering the family way long ago. And, and so for a split second, as somebody that's watching the film, you, you start to get this little flick of hope that, oh, maybe, just maybe Rachel will be able to fit in. Maybe she'll be enough to fit in as well. But that moment gets taken away pretty quickly as the conversation changes course, and Eleanor begins to sort of coldly and slowly and intimidatingly walk towards Rachel. She towers over here. Ra- or as Rachel is one step lower, she towers over and she extends her hand and just leaves it right on Rachel's face and stares her straight in the eyes and says this in the most cold manner you could possibly imagine. She's explaining what it's been like 
what she's gone through to be able to be enough. And Eleanor says, but having been through it all, I know this much. As she looks at Rachel, you will never be enough. And the scene ends as Rachel standing alone on the staircase, tears streaming down her cheeks as those words reverberate in her mind again and again, you will never be enough. Are you enough? Are you enough? Have you, have you ever asked yourself that question? Or have you ever asked someone else to answer that question on your behalf? Are you enough? You see, if you have wondered it, or if you have ever asked yourself that question, whether in, you know, out loud or just in your own head, I want you to know that you are by no means alone in asking that question. You are absolutely not alone. You see, because I'm a millennial, I did a quick scan of social media, and I found that over 1.2 million people have posted on Instagram using the hashtag, I am enough. So that question, am I enough, has weighed so heavily on over 1.2 million people that they found this need to go out and publicly proclaim it into the universe. That's saying, I, you know, here's my answer to that question. It's been such a weighty question in my life. I need to answer it for everybody in the entire world to see and to know. Here's my answer. And so I just wonder if 1.2 million people have felt the weight of that question so much that they've actually gone and answered it publicly into the internet world, then how many more people how many more people have wondered it privately in a one-on-one -on -one conversation or even in their own internal thoughts? I'd imagine quite a few. You see, I think this points to something that's true of us. I think it shows that one of our deepest and our most core longings as human beings is to be enough. We just want to feel like we're enough, and we're constantly look, looking for something or someone to tell us that we're enough. It's like we go around walking through life every day, sort of implicitly thinking or saying to ourselves, I just need someone or something or anyone or anything to just tell me or validate or affirm the fact that I'm enough. That's just, that's all I'm looking for. Would anybody be willing to do that for me? And I think it's so core to us, it's such a core longing that we have, this desire to be enough, that it manifests itself in a way that when something or someone actually does even momentarily give us that potential validation that we are enough, we cling to it and we white knuckle it and we don't want to let it go. It's like we attach ourselves to that thing or that group or that institution or that person and we're like, I'm not letting go of that. I think that's why, maybe if you've ever wondered about that teenager who keeps hanging out with that group of friends that you're just like, they are up to no good and you can't figure out why they continue to hang out for them, I'm guessing it's because in that group, for whatever reason, momentarily they felt like they were finally enough. 
or you're wondering why your friend continues to stay in this dead-end job where they're overqualified and underpaid and it's an unhealthy work environment and you just can't figure out why are they still there, it's likely that it's because that role at some point, somewhere, somehow gave them this sense that they were enough. You see, when something gives us even a glimmer of hope that we're enough, we kind of cling to it and we hold on to it so hard because, because this need in us is so clear. We have such a core longing to be enough. I at least know it's true of me. It's definitely true of me. I meet with a, on a regular basis with a Christian therapist, mostly because I think it's a really, really healthy practice, and it's had so many positive ramifications for so much of my life and of my own relationships. And one, one time when I was spending time with her recently, I was sharing part of my heart with her, and she sort of stopped me right in the midst of what I was saying, and she looked at me with this questioning eye, and she thought, Charlie, you know you're not a failure, right? You know you're not a failure, right? I remember the question hitting me like a ton of bricks over the head, and it's not because she was the first person to maybe even suggest that I wasn't a failure. It's not because she was the first person to potentially say something nice about me or affirmative about me. No, it's because she was sort of drawing something out of me that I really didn't ever want to admit. She was drawing out this core longing in me to feel like I was enough. She was drawing something out of me, this lingering, sneaking fear that I had in my life that continues to ask me this question over and over again. The question, what if I'm not enough? What if I'm actually not enough? What if I'm not enough? as a husband or a son or a friend or a co-worker as a pastor. That's my fear. If I'm honest with you, that's my fear that I just might not actually be enough. Do you ever feel that too? Have you ever wondered that or felt that too? So what do we do then when we experience that fear that asks that question, are we, what if we might not be enough? What do we do with that? Well, like I said, sometimes we look for anything that will affirm that in us and we just cling to it and we white knuckle grip it and we say, we're not letting go. I think it's why 1.2 million people have shouted their answer to that into the universe. Because we, we do these mental gymnastics in our head where we think, maybe if I just say it out loud for everybody else, to know. Maybe if I just publicly proclaim it, then I'll actually start to believe it about myself. Or we think, well, okay, what if I just surround myself with a group of people who's going to continually affirm me and make sure that I know that I am the best and I'm actually enough, and then, and then I'll actually believe it about myself. Or we think, you know what, or we could just pretend like it's not even that big deal of a question. Like that question, it, it, that's, that's not a core longing of mine. It's like, that's a little question. I don't really care about that. And so all of a sudden, we can make it a little question where we don't really care and it doesn't really matter. And then we believe it because like it's not even that important of a deal anyways. 
But I'm here to tell you, and maybe your experience will reflect the same thing, that it doesn't work. It does not work. It doesn't work because the world tells us at every single turn, at every single nook and cranny that we experience in life, day in and day out, as we navigate through this world, it constantly reminds us that we're not enough by its standards. That we're just not enough. You see, because the standard of the world to be enough is perfection. It's reaching the highest rung of the tallest ladder that you can possibly get. It's being that moral, that good of a parent, that successful of a business person, that good of a husband or a wife. It's that type of success and status, etc. That's the only way you can be enough by that lens is through the perfection that is required to be the highest or the tallest point. But you, hear, you see, the world never lets us really ever get to that point. Because here comes all the advertisements. Here come all the social media accounts. Here comes the daily gossip. All to remind us and to make sure we are clear that we'll never get there. That we will never be enough by its standard it is like Eleanor to our Rachel Chu staring us in the eyes and saying, you will never be enough. I mean, it hits us so many places. It's so hard to escape that you even potentially feel it at church. You know, maybe, maybe you've been here, maybe not. But maybe you've been here and you're, uh, you're on the in the car on the way here and you have a car full of screaming kids or maybe even screaming adults and nobody ate the right breakfast and everybody's got the mismatched clothes on and you're just thinking to yourself, we are nowhere near put together enough to be doing this. Or you're, or you're participating in worship here, you're standing around in the worship space and we're singing these incredible songs and everybody around you seems to be belting them out as loud as they possibly can. Everybody seems to know all the words and you're just standing there, you're like, I don't really know all the words and I'm barely courageous enough to even muster anything out loud. Well, I must not love God enough. Or you're walking around in the commons area after service and you start to overhear somebody who is telling a friend how they volunteered at every single possible church event and service project this week. And you are walking by, headed on your way to lunch, thinking about the fact that you have volunteered at none of those things. And you think to yourself, I must not be selfless enough. You see, we cannot escape it. We live in a world that is just bent on reminding us that we are not enough by its standard. But, but, here's the good news. Here's the good news that the Apostle Paul relays in the text that Allie just read to us a moment ago. He says this, he says, there's hope for that feeling. There's hope for that feeling because the standard has completely changed. The standard 
for being enough has completely changed. Paul has taken what it feels like is meant to be enough, and he's completely flipped it upside down on its head. And he said, I'm completely redoing the definition of what it is to be enough. And so in this text, he, he, he compares and contrasts two different standards of being enough. The, the first standard that he compares is the standard of the world. And that's what I, I just walked us through. And the second standard is the standard of God's kingdom. And so he says, by the world standard, perfection is what you have to reach to be enough. You got to get to the top of the ladder. But he says, I want to tell you about the standard of being enough as a human being that exists in God's kingdom. And so in this first Corinthians passage, he begins to share that with us. He says, God's standard is so different. And why is it so different? He says, it's so different because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think he's saying, because when you die and raise from the dead and conquer the grave, you have the right to redefine the standard. I think that's just how the rules work. And so he redefines the standard like this. He says, so who, in light of the resurrection, is actually enough? What does it mean to be enough in God's kingdom? And he goes ahead and he names out the fact that God has chosen certain groups of people, descriptors of people in his kingdom who are enough in this passage. And this is who he outlines. He says in this passage that God chooses the foolish. He says in this passage that God chooses the weak. He says in this passage that God chooses the lowly, and he says that God chooses the despised. In God's kingdom, that's the standard. That those groups of people in God's kingdom, they're enough. I don't know about you, but when I read this passage and I hear that, I just let out this most massive sigh of relief. Because the standard of perfection, I, I, I can't relate to that, but I can definitely relate to a few of those categories. I found myself in one or more of those descriptors quite often. I can see that in myself for sure. And so it does beg the question then, how Paul manages to get away with this. How does, he, how does he make the leap from the standard of the world that is perfection and jump all the way over here to describing the standard of God's kingdom that means the enough, and it, it, when he talks about enough, it includes the lowly, the despised, the weak, the foolish. How does he get away with doing that? Well, he actually anticipates that question and he answers it at the, in the last verse of this text that we read this morning. He says this. He says, The risen Jesus is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Paul saying this. He's saying the resurrection confirms this reality, that Jesus is actually enough, that this is why the standard changes. 
the standard changes because in the middle of the flip from between the two standards, Jesus enter in and the resurrection confirms that he is actually enough. You see, he hit the standard of perfection. He made it to the highest rung of the tallest ladder of whatever moral or ethical standard it would be to be enough in this world. Jesus did that. And so, according to the standard of God's kingdom, those like me, who are foolish, who are weak, who are lowly, who are despised, all of a sudden, we become enough because God has already been enough for us. All of a sudden, we become enough even when we're not perfect, even when we haven't hit that standard. And here's, here's how this works, is that, and I, I hope if you have completely tuned everything else out, that, that you would hear this, because I think this is just so powerful, that, that if you have, if you have a holy and a perfect and a righteous God who actually lives inside of you, as he does for all of us who follow him, then we automatically become enough. There's no way you can't be enough if a God who's enough actually lives inside of you. So you can be however foolish or imperfect that you possibly can imagine, but if the God who is enough lives inside of you, then just like that, you're now enough. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying that because God is enough, that now that we have him living inside of us because of the resurrection, that we're now enough. The standard is different. Admittedly, well, if you're like me, sometimes admittedly there's a difference between sort of hearing something like this and cognitively wrapping your mind around it and that the, between that and actually having it manifest itself in your daily life, actually living into it. And so sometimes, if you're like me, there can be a gap between things that we hear and we say, yeah, that sounds great, or I kind of understand that, and then how we actually live into that reality, say, how it manifests itself in our life on a Tuesday afternoon when we're at the grocery store and someone in front of us in line is going way too slow. So how, sometimes there's a gap, at least if you're me, between those two things. And I think if I'm honest with myself that part of this truth, part of what I've been explaining here, the most difficult part is not necessarily hearing it and thinking, oh, that's nice, but it is figuring out what does it mean for us to actually live into that? What does it mean for us to actually live into that? Because you might be sort of tracking with this idea of thinking, okay, Charlie, you're saying that we all have this core longing to be enough and that the world keeps telling us that we're not enough, but that God thankfully actually is enough and he lives in us and so therefore we're enough. I'm tracking with you on that, but I'm just wondering, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> what do you want me to do about it? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to let God's light shine through you every single day for the rest of your life 
by living into this truth by doing this. By admitting who you are and who God is. Because you see, admitting who we are and who God is, that's what actually makes us enough. The scriptures start to tell us how this difference plays out. It says that God's weakness is stronger than even our strength, and that God's foolishness is wiser than our wisdom. It's trying to give us clues about the fact of who we are and who God is, and it's saying that how we become enough is by actually living into that and admitting, God, this is who I am, and this is who you are. In other words, you don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to pretend anymore that you're enough. It's actually the opposite. It's one of the most freeing and weightlifting things that you can possibly do is to begin every day looking up in God and saying, God, I'd like to formally recognize who you are, which is a more than enough God, and I'd like to formally recognize who I am, which is a way less than enough human being. And when you do that, when you do that, God's light actually begins to shine through you way more than you could ever imagine. You see, his strength begins to carry you through situations where your attempt at strength, which is actually weakness, never has a chance. His wisdom begins to help you navigate situations where your attempt at wisdom, which is actually foolishness, would lead to a complete disaster. And all the while, his light is shining through you to other people because all of a sudden, they're not recognizing you. They're just recognizing God moving through you. Paul was starting to grasp this. He was starting to figure this out. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, he starts to explain how he himself has started to live into this reality, what it looked like in his daily life for him to admit who God is and who he is. When he says this, he's reflecting on Jesus' words, saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's reflecting on these words from Christ to the point where he gets to the point and he says, here's my reflection on this. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. In other words, he's saying, I'm actually not enough. I'm actually not enough. You know, I've been trying. I've been trying to hit the top of that ladder and it's never worked. I'm not enough. But he's saying, God is enough and he's living and working inside of me. And that is enough for me. And so at the end of the day, Paul's saying, if I'm going to brag about anything, I'm going to brag about that. That God is enough and he's living in me. In closing, I want to share with you two things that I think this actually takes for us to to do. Two things that it requires for us from us to live into this reality. The first is humility, and the second is vulnerability. Humility 
in the sense that we actually have to admit that we're not God and we can't do it all. We actually have to humbly admit that we're not God and we can't do it all. Author and Christian leader Gretchen Ronovic, she was recently reflecting on, on the reality of the requirement of humility to lean into this truth of who God is and who we are. And she says this, this is a direct quote. She says, sometimes my stress level reaches a level where I become numb and am just like, yeah, God, you're going to have to handle that. And she continues her reflection by concluding, and then he does. Faith, she says, isn't always a warm, fuzzy feeling. Sometimes it's giving up and taking a nap because he's managing the storm. End quote. You see, humility is required in acknowledging who God is and who we are. It takes us actually having to say, God, I can't do it all, so you're going to have to take the reins. And the second thing it requires of us is vulnerability. You see, living into this reality of who we are and who God is requires us to be vulnerable. It actually requires us to be honest with ourselves and with other people about some of our shortcomings and flaws. And what I'm not saying here, what I'm not saying is that we should be okay or that with, with some of the unhealthy or sinful realities of our life or that we should, we should desire to stop growing. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that I think we have to, and I think the scripture is saying that we have to honestly acknowledge and admit, vulnerably admit, the ways that we fall short. Because that's the only way that God's enoughness, how's that for a word? That God's enoughness will shine through our lack of enoughness. That our vulnerability is the only way that people around us will actually get to see God shining through us and that his enoughness would take the place of our not enoughness. Theologian Henry Nouwen, he observes this about our, our need to vulnerably admit who we are and who God is. He says this. He says, I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer other than his or her own vulnerable self. To stand in the world with nothing to offer other than his or her vulnerable self. That is the way that Jesus came to reveal God's love, she said. He said. He's saying that God desires to shine through you and me. He wants his radiant love and light to come through us, but the only way it can make its way through us, the only way it can make its way through us and get to other people is by us being vulnerable enough to admit that we're not enough and that God's enoughness can actually shine through us. This can only happen through our vulnerability and our humility. That's the only way that God's light can actually shine through us, that we can live into this truth that Paul has set forward in this 1 Corinthians text, and that we can actually become enough as a result of the resurrection. You see, if there's anything 
if there's anything that living in this world has taught me, it's that by any standard of its imagination, I am nowhere near enough. And if there's anything that reflecting on the resurrection of Jesus Christ has taught me, it's that he is enough. It's that he is enough, so I don't have to be enough. So this week, would you let God be enough for you? Would you let God's strength be enough for you? Would you let God's wisdom be enough for you? Would you let God's power be enough for you? And would you let God's love be enough for you? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you're enough. We thank you that because of the resurrection, you've confirmed it, that you are enough. So thank you that you've entered into a world where we constantly feel like we're not enough. And you've shared with us through your power and your actions that we can rest easy because you're enough for us. And that through our humility and our vulnerability that you being enough will actually radiate its light to the entire world around us. So God, we thank you for this truth today. We confess this reality that we do not meet the standard, that we are simply not enough. And we thank you that you've done something about that. That you've met us in our not enoughness and you've been more than enough for us. We pray a prayer of thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.